And I just was so happy to be watching a movie that had a concept, committed to its concept. Everyone seemed to be having fun. I think my new thing when watching movies is I either want to know that the actors are having the most fun they've ever had or the worst time of their life. And I won't (laughs) settle for anything in the middle of that. Brightwall Darkroom Podcast, a space where we belly up with critics, artists, and our magazine's contributors to speak from the heart about film. I'm Veronica Fitzpatrick. And I'm Chad Perman. Chad, how are you? I'm doing well, Veronica. How are you? I'm good. I'm enjoying uh, some unseasonably nice weather this weekend. Yeah, we are too. Here, the newspaper this morning called it a false spring. We have one weekend of fake spring in Seattle, and we're enjoying it. We've got 60 degrees Funny skies outside. It's wonderful to look at as we record our wonderful podcast. I know. I'm so excited to spend the afternoon inside recording this podcast. Yeah. You know, my favorite part of the whole podcast is when you ask me how I am because you have such a nice way of saying that. I always remember. <laughs> really? Chad, how are you? I love it. Look forward to it every month. So. Oh, that's warming. I love that. How are you doing these days? I'm good. I'm good. Um, starting a new semester, new students. Teaching some good stuff. I am, yeah. I just taught George Romero's film Martin. Oh, I've never seen that. Which is little seen and incredible. And the class I have did a really great job with it. That's great. Where is it in the filmography? It's his fifth feature. It's the one he made after The Crazies. Also, I haven't seen that one. Some sick movies. Cool. (laughs) Who do we have today, Chad? Well, it's funny you should ask. Joining us today is one of our very favorite people in the whole wide world. She's actually making her second appearance on the podcast back in August when she joined Zosha and Kelsey to talk about The Green Knight. And we're so excited to have her here with us today. She's been writing perfectly sharp, smart, observant, hilarious, inimitable essays for the magazine since the earliest days, all the way back in 2013, and has contributed a total of 104,900 61 words to the site on everything from Magic Mike XXL to A Room with a View and everywhere in between. She's one of the best film minds I know, as well as one of the funniest humans I know, and also just an absolute blast to have on any podcast. We highly recommend it. Please welcome to the show, Bright Wall Darkroom Editor-at-Large and Editor-in-Chief of the recently launched, very appropriately named Fran Magazine, Fran Hoffner. Fran, how are you? Oh, I'm great. And I feel really nice after that intro. Did that work okay? Did I plug the right stuff and hit yeah, the right beats? Yeah, of course. You nailed, yeah. nailed every line. I went down a rabbit hole and found uh, the first pitch that you submitted to us. Um, oh. It was in October of 2013. After I found that you followed us on Twitter in August of 2013, so you stalked us for a little bit. Well, I followed on Tumblr. I was <laughs> in it for a long time, probably 2010, 2011, in college. Oh, wow, really? Yeah. I had no idea. I thought you just kind of showed up. Uh, I was like, oh, I'm just... Uh, finished college let me just start submitting to random places but it wasn't that no 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 i knew what i was doing <laughs> okay well that was clear i reading the email i was like oh yeah she was she was already on the path well that essay is also like i'm having a huge meltdown <laughs> it was such a wonderful i mean when you read that you can still see your voice that you have now which is you know much more developed and all that writerly stuff but it was still right there on the pit i just remember very well it was on carnage we should say <laughs> it was it was i burst onto the scene <laughs> With a with an essay on Roman Polanski's Carnage <laughs> adaptation. 
Yeah, so that means we've known each other for close to nine years. That's crazy. That's right. Well, yeah, welcome. Thank you. Welcome. Fran is the only bright waller I've met in real life. That's right. Jealous, because I've actually never met her in real life. It's kind of wild. Yeah. I'm here. <laughs> She's like, I've been here the whole time. <laughs> yeah, come through. <laughs> So yeah, love to hear Fran's mind work. Excited for whatever she's going to be t- telling us today about Down With Love. Yeah, Down With Love. That's the movie that we're talking about today. I feel like you brought this up as a possible film pick because Fran had just seen it and you were like peeping it on Letterboxd. So we should say, I guess our theme for this month is opulence on the on the site. Mm-hmm. So we have a bunch of essays coming in. We did have one come in on Down With Love. So that was kind of in my brain that Down With Love and Opulence were somehow related. Uh, so I was like, oh, I love this movie. And then I checked out Fran's Letterbox, which I also highly recommend to everybody. She's one of the queens of Letterbox. And it's just a fascinating little like three word thing that says bliss TF out. And I said, okay, well, I need to hear Fran say way more about that. And it uh, looks like she just watched it. So then I asked you, Veronica, and you had not seen it. That's right. And I still actually am very curious because I don't know what you think about it still, which is not usually the case. No, you don't. <laughs> yeah. We could go either way on this one. Um, I'm more often the supporter of movies picked than the picker of movies so far. So yeah. I feel like I got a lot on the line today. So <laughs> This really tickles me because I remember when you were like, down with love. What about that? I was like, okay, opulence? Because um, uh-huh. I was familiar with the film, but I had not yet watched it. I sort of knew it was super stylish and you know, had this whole production design, costume design situation going on. But yeah, you were like, yeah, let's do it for opulence. And then, of course, (laughs) as weeks went by, I think at one point I even checked back in and was like, so yeah, opulence, this this movie for this theme? Yeah. And then for our listeners, or as I like to refer to them, our viewers sometimes, (laughs) last night, Chad slacked me and was like, I don't know about opulence, actually, in this film. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for not making it sound like a like twenty line like worry that I've messed up the whole podcast. It was it was like the Iliad of night before Slack messages. But do you not feel that it's like opulence aspiring as a movie? Yeah, and well, I mean, I eventually resolved it. Okay, Veronica, okay. Did, Veronica right. didn't respond. I mean, Veronica, you know, she she's a, a sane person who doesn't check Slack. All. No, no. What I do is I was drinking and I read Slack oh, okay. and I sort of had a message in my like a reply in my mind, you know, and then I. I just didn't type it out. I just stared at the message for a while. And then she didn't reply at all. And then I answered my own question. <laughs> no, and then I answered my own question 12 hours later and said, oh, never mind. I looked up synonyms for opulence and I think I can make this work. So I love that. Thesaurus.com comes through once again. Lavishness, luxury, splendor, swankiness, especially. Mm. Um, I was like, oh, yeah. So then uh, on with the show. Cool. A little synopsis. Down with love. 2003. Peyton Reed. Frothy. Effervescent, mid-century, modern homage or pastiche, as it's called in the Wikipedia, of 60s no-sex sex comedies. Renee Zellweger plays writer Barbara Novak, whose titular book Down With Love advises women to unstitch sex from romance in order to achieve independence via workplace equality. Boring. <laughs> Along comes notorious bachelor journalist Catcher Block, played by Ewan McGregor, who initially dismisses Novak as a bitter spinster, then gets interested. Once he sees her cardboard cutout around town, which we also see on a kind of global tour, then he pretends to be, as one does, a gentleman astronaut to win Novak's affections and expose her desire for love. Uh, Only she, too, is actually also posing as Barbara Novak. She's actually Nancy Brown, former secretary to Block. 
All these mistaken identities are revealed. They're resolved. Block and Novak slash Brown eventually get it together, get married. So do the real stars of the film. Vicky, who plays Novak's editor and is played by Sarah Paulson, and Peter, who is Catcher Block's also editor and best friend, played by David Hyde Pierce. So I had to write it out because it's a really convoluted plot summary, basically. It is. You know? Fran, what blissed you TF out about this film? Get right to the big question. (laughs) I love romantic comedies, but a big blind spot of my romantic comedy viewing is anything in the sort of late 90s to late aughts period outside of the Nancy Myers movies, which I've seen all of. But (laughs) a lot of that, especially early aughts stuff, I'm just on the cusp of like, being too young to go to the movie theater myself and having parents who are uninterested in the rom-com as a genre. So this is the kind of thing that completely passed me by. But I, I love the genre and I have a lot of fondness for the genre. And I'm always interested, I think, especially because like the mid-budget thriller or the legal drama, it's just something we're not making a lot of anymore. And if we are, we're making very low-budget, low-concept versions of them and that there was a high-budget and high-concept romantic comedy I had not seen put it high up on my watch list I feel like this was one that was kind of reappraised in the last several years also as being way more innovative and interesting than anyone gave it credit for at the time and you know was in one of those late night scrolling through all the streaming services doldrums and decided to watch it and I just was so happy to be watching a movie that had a concept committed to its (laughs) concept had actors who were committed to their roles everyone seemed to be having fun I think my new thing when watching movies is I either want to know that the actors are having the most fun they've ever had or the worst time of their life and I won't (laughs) settle for anything in the middle of that and so I just had a lot of fun watching it and I liked that these characters had maybe not chemistry in the way we think of it but chemistry with the parts that they were playing yeah well said yeah yeah and it was funny it was actually funny also that's the thing it actually funny on top of it yeah yeah. imho i I love how acronyms is going to be low-key your contribution to this episode yeah that's what i'm doing today i'm the acronym guy Let's talk about DWL. DWL. The production of this movie really interests me. Like when I started poking around on Wikipedia and seeing who is responsible for this. So the writers, Eve Alert, Alert, I would hate to say it wrong, but and Dennis Drake, both of whom are also actors who share credits on Legally Blonde 2, Red, White and Blonde story credit and two episodes of the nanny which made me wonder if they're together romantically because they (laughs) have collaborated on such specific credits i don't know seems like a real coin toss yeah and then like fell off the face of the earth after that there's not been a credit to either of them since 2003 yeah i couldn't find anything in my exhaustive googling for a script that was this in my opinion sharp and ingenious it's very weird that there was never another script written for anything ever Mm. so I don't know. That's another mystery for another podcast to solve. But I know. It is weird. And then we have the director, Peyton Reed, whose feature debut, 2000, Bring It On. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. An absolutely. epic debut. And then all the stuff that he's made since I have not entirely seen, I will admit. Not yeah. Ant-Man series, not The Mandalorian, not The Breakup, and not The Shaggy Dog. Yes, and I saw almost all that. It's been really disappointing. After that that one-two punch of Bring It On and Down With Love to then, I, mean, I had very high hopes for of where this career might be going and then hasn't launched the way I was hoping but he doesn't owe me that so <laughs> yeah. 
we're disappointed. I mean, a case could be made that some of these, you know, Ant-Man, Mandalorian are no doubt high concept, stylish projects. Sure. They are just high concept and stylish in a way that is like completely maybe unappealing to the three of us. <laughs> We are not the intended audience for this, no. Yeah. I didn't know if I was the intended audience for Down With Love either. I don't think you are. I don't know that I am. You're still hedging your bets. I want to know what you felt. I know. Well, <laughs> I've now seen it three times. Oh, wow. In very quick succession. <laughs> <laughs> we should be talking faster, by the way. Yeah, I know, right? That cadence that especially Sarah Paulson pulls off is really incredible. Oh. Yeah. So I was telling our producer, Eli, before we started that I love Mad Men and I love love Douglas Sirk and I love this kind of you know mm. mid-century New York City single girl working girl type of fictions mm-hmm. I just finished rereading Rona Jaffe's The Best of Everything which yeah. is from I think 1957 or 58 long novel follows a bunch of women who work in publishing and try to get married to mixed results but an incredible book like so I don't know Fran what did you think you just read this right for the first time I did just read it for the first time I I was a little disappointed by it, but for reasons that have nothing to do with the book itself. I've been working on a project that's about like mid-century New York, but specifically Mm. about Jewish women in New York. Mm. This book is considered like a big sort of feminist Jewish novel and was disappointed to learn that none of the characters in it are canonically Jewish. It's just that Rona Jaff herself is Jewish. Totally. I think there are a lot of Jewish influences on like the narrative arcs of those stories. It feels very Jewish in spirit, but I think I thought it was going to be about something more specifically cultural than it was. And so I was like, I read 500 pages and none of them are Jews. Uh, (laughs) And this was just because this was for research in one part. So like I really enjoyed it as its own thing. And I'm a big fan of like Mary McCarthy's The Group. Also, I love watching girls slug it out through their lives. (laughs) But yeah, I think that book is interesting and I found kind of bleak in its observations as well. Hmm. Really sort of bummed me out, but I I did enjoy it. But that was sort of how I came to that book was because I was led to believe it was going to be about single Jewish women, which is sort of the demo that I feel very interested in in that time. Hmm. I can totally imagine the disappointment of that. And I just love imagining you going, I read 500 pages of this and none of them are Jewish. (laughs) Like, not again, like every time (laughs) you read a long book. (laughs) It was funny, I was reading some Ferrante too, and I was like, the Italians... They might as well be Jews. Like, you know what? I'll just, I'll jump over a chasm here to make that conclusion. Judaism is a good connection because when I was watching Down With Love, I was thinking the whole time about crossing Delancey. Not to bring it back oh. to oh, sure, yeah. all of our pod episodes to each other, but... I was thinking about the Green Knight. We're, yeah, not again. That central question in crossing Delancey of like, is happiness in my career, is fulfillment in the workplace really enough to buoy me? through or am I also secretly or not so secretly harboring wishes to end up with someone capital E capital U yeah that is definitely like on the menu with down with love yeah and thought about that that's that's a very interesting connection I mean I I was now kind of think that you're just always thinking about crossing Delancey all the time okay never not thinking about crossing Delancey good movie to be thinking about yeah Chad, what do you find so charming about this film? Well, I, so I'll step back a little bit just to say, like, man, history with it really quick. Great. So I saw it in the theater, and I saw it a couple times in the theater in 2003. I've just had a soft spot for it since the first frame of the first viewing that I had. 
and was really, really happy to see that it still holds up as I've rewatched it a couple times the last couple of years. It's kind of my go-to, what kind of what Fran was saying, like list TF out, but it just, it's just happy. I just feel such pleasure watching it. Almost the kind that at times I resist analyzing any of it and just enjoy all of the things that are happening because it's so stimulating to so many parts of my brain from the, you know, the set design, the sound, the cadence of the dialogue, the sharpness of the dialogue, some of the directorial decisions, the music. It felt like someone really worked hard to put a whole package together just specifically to bliss our brains out while also still being astute and making some interesting points and managed to get a twist in there. We haven't even really talked about what is this? Is it a parody? Is it an homage? Is it a satire? Is it, you know, so I just think it has such love in itself as it, you know, as Fran was saying, everyone seems to be having such a good time and that's just such a good thing to watch in, you know, year two of a pandemic when we've all been stuck at home and there's just none of this happening. Yeah, no masks anywhere in the movie. It's great. <laughs> So I saw it in the theater in 2003, and I was pretty young, just got married. We were living in Austin, Texas at the time. It was a, a couple of years where I remember thinking quite often, wow, I only know like one person in this entire state, which is my wife. <laughs> we moved out there for her to go to grad school. So it was a very lonely existence for a couple of years in my personal life, and movies were a great escape. So I saw anything I could and tracked them in a way that I don't think I've really tracked them before since, like what's in theaters and what can I see? Okay, one more contextual thing. It was a really weird time in 2003 <laughs> to be alive in America, and it seems kind of quaint now, but at the time, you know, not to get all super deep here, but like 9-11 happened, and then all of a sudden we went from this relative prosperity and stability of these Clinton years to this just crazy thing where we're all of a sudden in two wars. 2003, I just looked this up, the Iraq war started in March of 2003. Down with Love came out in May of 2003. Came out one week after the famous mission accomplished thing that Bush did on the ship. Contextually, that's where we're at. And so it's this crazy time in America. There's protests. There's all this stuff going on, like many times throughout history. And when there's times of crisis in the world, eventually a really escapist stuff starts coming out in the movie theaters, all the way back to the Great Depression. I always think of this as a musical, even though it's not. I just think that uh, it was just such a wonderful delight to walk into a theater and be in this world instead of what was going on in America in 2003. Mm -hmm. And I think that was part of the big appeal to me. It was like, this is just a complete escapist fantasy and so well done and so well constructed that I, I just loved, loved the hell out of it. And I've just been kind of rewatching it every few years ever since. Wow, that's crazy. I love that lens for it. When listening to you talk about what this offers in terms of escapism in the context of when it came out reminds me of how much I love the Jacques Demy films mm. and how like the young girls of Rochefort and sherbet colored worlds that are sort of unimaginable in the context of like world war. Yeah. <laughs> For me, with this film, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe because I'm just seeing it right now. But there was this question that you raised of like, is it a parody? Is it an homage? Mm -hmm. Is it satirical? Like, what is the precise voice in which it's citing these comedies from the 50s and 60s? Mm -hmm. That feels like an open question for me. And there were moments with the sort of innuendo and witty repartee type of stuff where I just wasn't sure if... What I was experiencing was like a quotation of a Rock Hudson Doris Day movie or an imitation or an evocation or like what mm -hmm. was exactly going on and what kinds of pleasures were being afforded. What do you mean by that last line? Just like, is this the pleasure of like, oh yeah, I get this because I've seen Pillow Talk. Oh, okay. Um, or is this more of like a, 
Renee Zellweger just did Chicago and here she is again. And I also thought this was a musical for some reason in my mind. Like I was like, oh, yeah, Down with Love. That's that like retro musical, even though it's absolutely not. Well, it's got all the elements except for characters breaking into song. It's got the opulence. Yeah, it's got so much opulence. One could say. Just flying around all over all the opulence. <laughs> but, you know, the, the composer, a composer who worked on Hairspray and has, has certainly written a lot of musicalish scores and, and numbers in his life. New Hairspray? Old Hairspray? Uh, I think the Broadway show. Oh, cool. Fascinating career uh, and has won all the awards that you can win in all the different areas of entertainment. And I think there's a quote that I put somewhere in the notes uh, from Peyton Reed at the time where he's like, yeah, the script basically was, you know, he says he thinks of this as a musical without the music and wanted to have that come through in the direction and the, some of the choices they were making throughout the film. But I, I can I can see in Veronica's face that she's wrestling with how she feels about it. And that's what I'm interested well, in. Well, <laughs> is your hesitancy in script and character or the whole thing? Like... I would say when I watch this, it doesn't really face me as to like what happens in the movie. I know enough about the genre to know that these are all sort of marriage plots Mm -hmm. and it would have stunned me if this had done something like Mm -hmm. even remotely subversive, which I don't think it's really trying to do. But Mm -hmm. on a pure aesthetic experience, I think it just completely works. Yeah, I do just feel uh, an inordinate amount of pleasure every time it's on. We were also talking before the episode started about Far From Heaven as like a kind of counter Mm -hmm. example, an alternative example. And that's something where, and it is hard for me to sort of parse why I feel this way, but where the adherence to the sort of generic conventions of the melodrama, that really works for me. Like I Mm. feel very moved by Far From Heaven. I feel really sucked into the kind of like lurid colors and big swelling emotional beats and the exploration of domesticity and women and all of that stuff really works for me in the way that the Cirque films like super super work for me I just rewatched all that heaven allows and was like oh "Oh my god so devastating (laughs) but this I okay so I'll go to an example maybe which was like early in the film when Barbara Novak is first shown the cover of her book by this sort of campy art director uh, for the publishing house, Mm -hmm. Banner Publishing, which is publishing her book. And um, there's some like quick cheeky innuendo and Renee Zellweger, who has just such great facial expressions, has this really big, broad kind of reaction as if she's being like poked with something from behind and has the big cartoon eyes. And there's a leap in the sort of soundtrack, Mm -hmm. uh, like a horn sound to kind of be like, (laughs) this is a joke. That's like a moment where I was like, what's happening right now? It almost, Hmm. yeah, I just couldn't really, it felt like that Buffy episode that's a musical. It just felt like, like what, (laughs) I don't know, like, is this? Are you talking about like tonally what's going on? Yeah, tonally, precisely. Yeah, tonally, tonally. Yeah. Yeah, I just wasn't sure. I was like, is it making fun of how in movies like Lover Come Home, there's sexual innuendo type jokes? Or is it just doing it? I just couldn't really sort of figure out what was going on. But I mean... On a surface level, there is there is so much to like love and pay attention to. And I love that it's shot by Jeff Cronenweth, who has shot so much stuff for David Fincher and yeah. sort of created this like super dark cinematography look, like Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Social Network, Fight Club, One Hour Photo, a film I love. That's a great film, yeah. Isn't it spooky? Um, but also George Michael's Freedom 90 video. That's like as iconic as iconic gets. I know. It's credited on Wikipedia to a different DP, but yeah, it is an absolutely like iconic, indelible music video. Yeah. 
yeah, what's the goal of this movie? I don't know. <laughs> I thought about that a lot while watching it as well. Um, when I was not blissed TF out. Um, <laughs> I feel like the film wants to point out both in its, you know, send up of these old no sex sex comedies, how retrograde the mm-hmm. gender relationships were mm-hmm. back then. But it's coming from a time in which I would say was also a pretty low, low in <laughs> gender relationships. So therefore it feels very yeah. easy, you know, for a script like this to point a finger mm-hmm. 40 years in the past mm-hmm. and say like, oh, it was so messed up back then. Yeah. But without having to gesture towards anything that sort of comes out of that or is continuously influenced by that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had not even really thought about the timing of this movie alongside its point in like American history. But I would just say that like yeah. on the opulence point, this movie makes stuff look so good it does make stuff and (laughs) material objects Mm -hmm. and it sort of makes you want to shop Mm -hmm. which is i think in part because movies aren't bright anymore they don't make me want to go buy clothes or makeup or Mm -hmm. an expensive uh mid-century modern couch whereas something like this does make you want to spend money on good american plastic (laughs) that does actually get recycled and doesn't get just thrown into a forest Kind of to Fran's point, I do think it tries to have its cake and eat it too. And I don't think it entirely works where it both tries to make fun of and love these films and say, ha ha, wink, wink, remember these movies and also very much operate within the rules of those. And so I think it's trying to do a whole lot of stuff that I don't particularly think always works, but it, it does get overridden in the pleasure center of my brain. So I just I just keep recommending it to people. I just I just love it. But I think there's like a reason that like high schools also keep putting on like noises off, even Mm. though like that is an old play. Do they? I think I'm pretty sure. I'll ask my daughter. Yeah, ask them if they're still doing noises off. I think they've been still doing noises off. And it's like, why would you do that? That's not about anything that is relevant to anything anymore. But I still think there's a huge sort of dopamine center to the cases of mistaken identity and Mm -hmm. plotless talkiness and that kind of real smart, indulgent language that still appeals. It does feel like it is having its cake and eating it too, but it's like a nice cake, you know? Yeah, it's a wonderful cake, yeah. And you got, I mean, the names, you get Catcher and David Hyde Pierce. I mean, there's, which is the real person's name, not the character. (laughs) (laughs) No, he's always playing himself. He's always playing some version of of Niles or David Hyde Pierce or whatever, and it's always wonderful. And I think this is one of the apex uh, moments for him in, in film. I just think he does a really, really good job in his probably well suited to if he wanted to just being in these types of movies for the rest of his life tony randall was the guy who played like the best friend confidant of the main character rock hudson character in those rock hudson and doris day movies and also like usually provided a a healthy amount of comedic relief and and to read about how he kind of watched a bunch of tony randall stuff not to imitate it Mm. but to kind of have be soaked in that in some way so because this was the tony randall role in the rock hudson doris day movies um. right and again that that maybe gestures to like what the film's overall approaches is we try to immerse ourselves in this it's not a direct imitation or parody it's not a saturday night live skit it's i think they really mean it and i think they mean it with love but i also think yeah it's a lot to try and do in a 95 minute you know rom-com yeah i do think uh, the interesting part too um on the you know the douglas sir connection or the far from heaven connection is there's no winking in that movie there's so much winking in down with love i do think that at times can be a Hey, look what we're doing! Look what we're making! Did you, you know, it's it's a little bit too on the nose at times, mm. even for even for my taste. But again, overridden mostly by the dopamine. Yeah. I think there is one winking moment in Far From Heaven, and it's when Dennis Quaid is at the party that he's throwing at the home.
home with his wife and it's specifically when someone compliments Julianne more on like looking great and he's like you should see her in the morning before she puts her face on and does this really funny horrible <laughs> kind of ha- hang dog expression okay. <laughs> yeah <I remember> it's <laughs> like terrible we don't know that he's gay yet but it definitely yeah you can tell he has very little affection for his wife in that moment yeah <laughs> <laughs> nothing could be more funny yeah okay I read an interview with Sarah Paulson in Vulture where she talks about getting cast in this film. The person who conducted the interview asked her this really savvy question, I thought, which was the fact that her character, Vicky, thinks that Peter McManus, the friend character played by David Hyde Pierce, is gay for a myriad reasons in the film, which he's not. But the fact that David Hyde Pierce came out after the film was released mm-hmm. and she was not publicly dating women at the time of its release either. Oh, yeah. And so the interviewer was like, does this feel like you guys were sort of reproducing some of that subtext of Rock Hudson also being low-key gay in these like hmm. heterosexual romantic comedies? And she's like, yeah, no, I haven't thought about that at all. But obviously I like I'm picking up what you're putting down. And that's really interesting to think about. But it hasn't crossed my mind. And it's something that really stuck with me when I was rewatching the film for the pod was just sort of the queerness and campiness of it and all the sort of like aesthetic exuberance that is really fun to bring it back to the idea of like dopamine production. I love that. And the way that happens with the costuming and the sense of scale that you're talking about, how the spaces seem highly designed, but also empty. Mm -hmm. People are so small in the frame and these sort of soundstage sets are so enormous and blank and white, many of them. That's fun. That's fun to look at. Yeah. Fran, who's the MVP of this movie for you? David Hyde Pierce. All right. Mm -hmm. 100%. I love this guy, but I grew up on Frasier. I've always really loved him i've been lucky enough to like see him on stage and stuff Whoa. too but oh, wow. i had this moment where i revisited wet hot american summer mm. one of my favorite movies which you have written about for the site which i have written about for the site like 10 years ago yeah a really long time ago and i've loved it longer than then even i would say not until i myself attended grad school and i myself became an adjunct professor just the plight <laughs> of that character in that movie suddenly feel so emotionally robust that it just made me sort of you know team David Hyde Pierce ever since. I love the David Hyde Pierce and Sarah Paulson roles in this movie and I do think where it's sometimes lacking in I don't know emotional resonance or like any kind of weight or subversiveness in its A plot it's futzing with it a little bit in the B plot Mm -hmm. with its two of them and they're sort of prodding at each other's sort of sexualities and the roles of the best friends. Mm -hmm. I think often these days when we even make an attempt at a romantic comedy, those best friend roles go to people who the industry wants to be famous, perhaps more Mm -hmm. than they are deserving of that fame. (laughs) They're people kind of on the cusp of happening versus people who have that kind of chemistry with the leads or also proven comedic chops. I mean, my complaint about every actor nowadays is that no one is funny, but (laughs) to have two very comedically solid actors in these side parts doing completely three-dimensional performances in an otherwise cartoon Looney Tunes ass movie mm-hmm. is really fun. David Hyde Pierce is so genuinely funny in this movie. Like I was is. shocked at some of his line readings. He just pulls <laughs> off like the cleverness of the script really well without it just seeming like I memorized this inverted phrase, mm-hmm. but it actually organically comes out of his mouth, probably because he went to Yale. I just really want to bring up Yale again because it's uh, <laughs> okay. come up in the eyes wide shut pod if you all if you viewers remember 
right? Because yeah. the like homophobic guys on the street are wearing Yale shirts, yeah. which Yale I thought dudes. was hilarious. Yeah. I was like, what is this podcast? opinion on Yale yeah. just before I say something uh, <laughs> <laughs> inflammatory I don't know if we're pro or anti Yale. I don't have any up. connection to Yale we try to uh, hit okay. crossing Delancey I'll take my opinion Yale. off mic then okay <laughs> I want to talk about Todd Haynes oh yeah let's do it <laughs> okay. I think within a week of watching this I think I watched this when I had COVID also, which would maybe explain why I was blissed TF out watching because nothing was blissing me TF out. That might not have been bliss, friend. You're like, I just had a fever. <laughs> Day four <laughs> might, have been fever. A, might have been a Mystery brain fog. solved. <laughs> could you smell this film? Yeah, I wish I could. I bet it smells so, yeah, like, so cigarette amazing. smoke and, like, really expensive cologne. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I very recently rewatched Carol, which I also think Sarah Paulson is incredible in, mm-hmm. but also doing, you know, that Douglas Sirk melodrama mm-hmm. kind of performance. Mm-hmm. That is a character who has maybe like 14 minutes of screen time in that whole movie mm-hmm. but is such a robust figure and I think so essential in understanding the like queerness as it's presented in that movie and that there have always been lesbians is mm-hmm. kind of what I think that character tends to represent and so that she's able to work both sides of I mean I don't think Carol is like pastiche but uh, I do think it's camp in its own sense. Mm-hmm. I find that quite effective. I just think she's a genius. You guys have both saw it for the first time in the last couple months. Mm-hmm. But you guys are seeing it with a cultural contextual knowledge of her now. <laughs> Sarah Paulson, Emmy winner. Yeah. So back then she was just like, it's one of those things where if you go to the movies a lot, you get kind of used to this feeling where someone just comes onto a screen. You're like, who is this? This this person's amazing. Uh, and that was kind of what happened, to me, at least for me, when mm-hmm. I went and saw Down with Love. I don't think, I was trying to look up if I'd seen her. I, it's one of her earliest roles. I'm pre- it's got to be, right? Uh, yeah. So she was in What Women Want. Oh, yeah. Nancy, yeah. Uh, in 2000 and then, and then Down with Love. The one bad Nancy Myers movie. Well, yeah. No, I've seen them all, and that one okay. sucks. <laughs> Separate pub. Let's, I want to hear about that sometime, though, for sure. It takes place in <laughs> Chicago, though, so I got to give it something. Okay. <laughs> but is anybody Jewish in it? That's the question. Well, in a Mel Gibson movie, that's trickier also. Uh, <laughs> oh, my. Like, are they Jewish? <laughs> I don't know if there is, actually. <laughs> Nancy. I think Nancy is. <laughs> I don't know. So, um, I don't know where... I, so, yeah, David Hyde Pierce was the Frasier guy, uh, and yep. if... I do actually, friend, really weirdly associate this movie with, with Wet Hot American Summer as well. That was the movie that I watched more than any other movie on video. Mm. So we watched it a lot in those Austin years. Uh, so I oddly connect those two movies as well. Wet Hot American Summer also might be succeeding emotionally at what this movie is kind of failing at. Interesting. As pastiche and send up. Yeah. Even though I don't think it's as robust a genre. Yeah. That movie works like such a, yeah. you know, there's like math people who are like, calculus is actually beautiful if you understand it. And that is like Wet Hot American Summer to me. Where I'm like, it's <laughs> such a beautifully intricate math problem. It is. Yeah. I do also remember it didn't do that well. Uh, and neither did Down With Love particularly. Which right. Which is you know, from my talk about, hey, this came out in this context of, you know, the Iraq war and chaos in America and everything. And it did not succeed. No, it got smashed by the Matrix Reloaded. Yeah. It did get, it got smashed by various things. I don't know. It was, it's so fascinating because at the time you literally have like Bridget Jones and Obi-Wan Kenobi in a movie. And plus he had done, you know, Moulin Rouge, which obviously was a full on musical. What a fascinating career, Velvet Goldmine. He was doing a lot of interesting movies up to that point, and this was very different, but also played on some of the stuff that you kind of culturally knew about him. And then Renee Zelliger, of course, was you know, Jerry Maguire and Bridget Jones and Cold Mountain, which is obviously a very, a very different movie. 
I think this is after Chicago and before Cold Mountain. Yeah. I love her in Cold Mountain. That movie's a nightmare, but <laughs> I quite like her. Nobody's having fun in that movie. I remember you, Fran, on a podcast, I don't know, a year or two ago, saying like you hadn't finished that movie when that was the, the movie you guys were supposed to watch for the podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, we covered it on Law School. It's an iconic Jude performance, I guess. Please tell our listeners what Law School is. Law School is my off-dormant but still-going Jude Law podcast I do with my friend Caroline Simons. <laughs> We covered Cold Mountain, but I had seen it maybe three years prior. Caroline had never seen it. And she's like, you need to rewatch it for the episode. And I was like, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't want to do that. And yeah, It's like two hours and 50 minutes. I think I got an hour in and I was like, fuck this. I'm not doing this. Isn't Jack White in that? No, I love Jack White because of the iconic photo of him having a bad time at the Cubs game. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I like basically every person in that movie. It's like every bit player in that is, you know, is either Giovanni Ribisi or Philip Seymour Hoffman or Natalie Portman. But that movie is just such a slog. And it's this weird sort of like both sidesism mm-hmm. in a way of just like in the Civil War. We were all actually guilty, but some of us more guilty than others. So it was like, who cares? Has nothing to say. Put that on the poster. So yeah, what did you guys think about them now? Because you're watching them with 2022 brains. Or did anything about that even spark any thoughts for you guys? About like the two people who at the time were two of the biggest stars on the planet doing this movie and so dopamine filled and it bombed and, and that's a thing i still can't understand ewan mcgregor in in this movie he's meant to be this like lothario bachelor and he is so creepy to me in this movie i mean i know that's also part of it not creepy in a sex pest way but creepy in like a too many teeth in the mouth like too many chiclety teeth yeah you know what i mean and i've been thinking still about what you said fran about how they have chemistry with the characters they're playing which I think is really well observed and that they do not seem to have chemistry with each other or I feel like they don't have chemistry with each other I don't need them to actually I don't really need them to either I don't think I'm really rooting for them in a meaningful (laughs) sense watching them court each other does not make me fall in love no it feels like business yeah and it's supposed to I guess yeah given the context of the editing and the mistaken identities and stuff and it's fun to see Catcher Block and Peter in each other's apartments I love mm-hmm. Peter's apartment is an actually lived in space and Catcher Block has that kind of like playboy everything's on a remote control yeah the, the set designer said that was his favorite set yeah oh the production designer is uh Andrew Locke who also does The Witcher oh wow great show unreal production design on The yeah. Witcher great stuff meticulous <laughs> world building great great design sort of a slog second season it's going to be fine. They're going to work past it. I'm not worried about what that means for that show. But that is also a beautifully designed program. I agree, just jumping back quickly, there's sort of a nefariousness to Ewan McGregor as a romantic lead. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it works here because I think this character is quite dark. Mm. Yeah. But I love him in Moulin Rouge. That movie is very big for me. You also read about that first. Wow, you have a better <laughs> recollection of some of these than I do. Encyclopedic, honestly. But, like, I don't buy him as the sort of sad guy romantic lead of that movie. I love him in it, but it doesn't really work. And I prefer when he's, you know, a bit devilish. That's why Mm -hmm. I think he's, like, so good in 
Birds of Prey. Oh, I have not seen that. Neither have I. One of the few <laughs> superhero entries of the past couple of years I think is worth anyone's time. Hmm. Really? Okay. You know who would be good in this is Jude Law. Well, of course. He's good in everything. He's good in everything. He's never bad. Okay. <laughs> He's sometimes bad. Oh my God. Wait, how did he not get cast in this? If this came out in 2003, he was about to have his like juggernaut 2004, which meant he was probably like... What was what was? Oh, he has like six movies come out. That's Cold Mountain and Sky Captain and The Aviator and all this, all this other shit. That's what leads Chris Rock to be like, who is this at the Oscars? Mm. And then Sean Penn has to be like, he's the greatest actor of our generation or whatever. Uh, hey, hey, Jude. So he was very busy, I think. He was booked and busy. But he does have that kind of like actual rakish handsome Alfie he was doing Alfie which Alfie, is basically which is, Alfie. That is this which is this yeah. kind of thing exactly yeah 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 awful movie terrible yeah. movie <laughs> terrible movie I had never really thought about someone else playing that role but I think he would have been perfect in this I do like Renee Zellweger though and I put in the notes that I'm amazed how much she squeezes out of a nonverbal facial expression or gesture like she's a, a whole lot her little reactions and kind of like I love when we first see her and she has that like bright eyed I just arrived in the big city moment with the camera and you can see her kind of like breathing and kind of Mary Tyler Moore moment yeah, yeah she probably <laughs> reminds me of me like trying to act in high school plays and like just doing the most like way too much like humiliating <laughs> amounts did you try to act in high school plays i did yeah i was like awful oh my goodness in high school theater yeah i was a thespian oh my goodness TM. you were yep. a theater person mm-hmm. that's fantastic it made me wonder if renee would have been a good lucy i know she just played judy and it would be crazy to have someone just always playing those roles but <laughs> or would it be perfect being the ricardos is a film that haunts me on many levels but i have been trying to to fan cast lucy in that role and i think i mean it's all in renee's face yeah. she's got one mm-hmm. of the most memorable faces mm-hmm. yeah could have been interesting but have either one of you guys seen uh, nurse betty that she was in as well yes that's a fascinating uh, it's in the Boot movie no my mom loves that movie oh wow well i mean chris rocks in that she's like that movie is insane and it's really good yeah it is a very strange movie um but yeah i mean she she's a fantastic actress chad i know you just watched pillow talk that's michael gordon 1959 it's one of the three movies that rock hudson and doris day collaborated on in the sort of late 50s early 60s what did you think about that they're very fine films what down with love does to my brain Hello Talk just does not do. Mm. And I think I, I thought about it this morning and I think that I did it in the wrong order because I watched Down With Love first mm. and then watched Pillow Talk, which is, you know, like having a real soda and then having a diet soda. It's got all the elements, but it doesn't zip along. Mm. It doesn't have the cadence. You know, obviously the, the the color schemes are somewhat similar. A lot of the design was taken from that. I know in one of the interviews, um, either the, the set or production designer had said, you know, if there is a single biggest influence, it was Pillow Talk of all those mm-hmm. movies. And you can certainly see, I mean, the banter and the stuff. I mean, it, it, does, it doesn't not work for me. It's just all those films are impossible to actively dislike, but they also just didn't really engage me. Rewatching, I had seen that like 20 years ago and I thought, okay, uh, maybe it'll hit different now. And, and it, it didn't. I felt pretty much the exact same way as mm-hmm. I did 20 years ago. It's like, okay, that's what this is. This is fine. Mm-hmm. It does make me appreciate Down With Love more because, you know, in my mind, transcends the genre that it's trying to do Mm -hmm. um, if that's what the genre was because we're not really talking about a genre as much as about like literally like three or four films here so I thought the writing was fine the the setup was fine it just didn't hit the same dopamine pleasure center again not bad not saying I didn't like it just saying like yep that's a movie that was on that past time in in my life 
It'd be great if we could get you to say that's a movie uh, in every episode of the podcast. Yeah, remember last time I said that's a movie. I was, know, I was... know. Different inflection. Power of the Dog was a movie. This one was a movie. It met the requirements of a movie. But also, we didn't actually say that the Sarah Paulson character is kind of a new invention for this mini genre. There's always a, a male best friend, you know, this Tony Randall character, but mm -hmm. there's not an equivalent. So they're more a trio in, in those films. Mm -hmm. And and I do think that, that having her in there does add some really interesting things that, that maybe weren't there in Pillow Talk. So. I do think it's interesting that Pillow Talk, if I'm understanding correctly in terms of where it came in Rock Hudson and Doris Day's careers, was meant to sort of reinvent their on-screen personas a little bit. So the day was meant to be sexy for one of the sort of first time, like really underlining that aspect of her. Yeah. Not just this kind of girl next door quality, but, you know, someone you would think about in a bedroom and Rock Hudson being funny. Thinking about what that film did with the star personas for the two leads here, even though it has these innuendos, it's not a super sexy film. No. But I did root for Vicky and Peter, mm -hmm. for Sarah Paulson and David Hyde Pierce. I want them to get it together like way more than I care about what's going on in that like A plot. <laughs> I have a thought towards a theory that a really good rom-com you should actually care about and would watch maybe a movie entirely made out of the best friends those two characters they should also be able to carry a whole movie if they had to does that make sense yeah totally not really no <laughs> oh i i know i know exactly what you mean all right fran the new host of the bright wall dark room podcast oh shit that's me replaced <laughs> it's interesting to me because i feel like vicky and peter do carry the whole film i love every time they're on screen it's more interesting to me to see renee zellweger and sarah Paulson playing off of each other, appearing in those great super choreographed costume reveals where there's a montage yes. of them appearing, like entering rooms and they're wearing sort of coordinating outfits and hats. I, I love that. That's a really exciting aspect. Very opulent. I mean, their whole deal is very Rona Jaff, best of everything. Mm -hmm. mm. Best of everything is women who, is so much of women who you don't know if they actually like each other having lunch together and telling each other all their secrets and being like, I don't even know if I like her. Right. <laughs> And should we live together? Yeah, and should we live together? <laughs> should we go in an apartment? And I never want to see you again. Great book. God. The question I would have is that, like, is it us bringing almost two decades worth of hindsight to watching this movie that makes us more interested in these two side characters? Or mm -hmm. does the movie want us to look through the glossy tint and be like, oh, here's the two interesting people. I just can't mm -hmm. tell to the extent to which this is on purpose. Or... I think that happens, but I don't know if that's what they wanted, mm. <laughs> which is the fascinating part. If I had to bet on it, I'd say that it might have been unintentional that, that those two end up being kind of the real thing that you care about. Yeah, because so much of the ending is about this big reveal that Barbara Novak isn't who she says she is. Mm -hmm. But it happens so quickly and is so to my pea brain like borderline confusing it's not borderline confusing it's confusing yeah she has this huge long monologue moment where she's like no i fell in love with you by this name and this is actually my name yeah. and stuff about her <laughs> hair color changing and just all of that stuff when i was googling around about the movie i did find and i think this is amazing um at least one young actor who has performed this monologue in like audition tape footage i saw that same clip on youtube yeah, yeah. shout out to <laughs> yeah. that woman good for her yeah but it's very convoluted and i found myself sort of just like hoping that her character and catcher block would like get it together so that mm -hmm. these subsidiary friends could find their way to a romantic resolution as well oh yeah the double wedding very shakespearean yeah the double i was gonna say the double wedding yeah so all the zipping and 
adapting of the film and all the style, whatever. For that monologue, they're like, boom, we're bringing it all down. They do it like full on like one shot right on her mm. for the entire, it's like a five minute monologue. Yeah, I think it's like seven pages of script. For all of the, the back and forth, there is zero back and forth. They never show Ewan McGregor the entire time. They just stay right on Renee Zellweger mm. as she delivers this incredibly long monologue that is like completely just stops the entire everything of the movie that's been going on. And I was like, okay, well, they're going to give him a good thing. And they just cut to him and he's just kind of got like wide eyes like, what? <laughs> it was a weird choice to me. I was like, why are you trying to make this? Is this a melodrama that you're trying to like, are you winking here? Mm. Or are you trying to be like, cut the crap. Now this is the real part of the movie. Mm. It was a weird way to do a twist where they're like, we're not going to let you put anything together. We gave you no clues for any of this, mm-hmm. but they just go through and tell you exactly everything that happened, that there was also no possible way to guess until you see it, which is cheating when it comes to twists in my mind. But what it allows for is such an exciting hair color reveal in the (laughs) final moments of the film where fake Barbara Novak or Brown is like, I don't want to be my old brunette self anymore. And I'm also not quite this confident blonde that you see either. I am and taking a turban off. Amazing costume choice for this Mm -hmm. big conclusion. And she just has that crazy red hair, which would go to Fran's theory that she should have been Lucy. Yeah. And we didn't actually say it is very bizarre, not in 2003, but definitely 2022 to watch Renee Zellweger watching Judy Garland on TV. So bizarre. (laughs) So bizarre. Yeah. That's a really uncanny moment. Obviously not planned in any way, but yeah. yeah. Have either of you seen Judy? Yes. Oh, you have? Uh Uh-huh. No. I've seen clips. Does that count? I don't know. Doesn't count. Probably counts a little. I've heard she's great. I think it's an incredible performance, honestly. I've threatened to watch Judy like a dozen times. Did you say you've threatened to watch it? Yeah, it's one of those that sort of lingers on the horizon. I know I'm going to have to do it. I'm too curious not to. Yeah, I'm not a huge biopic person and definitely not a big addiction biopics kind of person, but incredible performance like it's shocking cue it up and have a good cry that's what i say all right i will cool i'll let you know do it (laughs) (laughs) and there was one other thing too about the ending the musical number yeah the end credit sequence lovely 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 that really carried me over the end i think i also sort of turned on it during that big monologue just because You know, every now and then I'll have the experience watching a movie where I'm like, it's not so much that the movie is ending, but that I'm personally finished watching this movie. (laughs) Whatever happens after that doesn't matter to me, but it sort of reeled me back in on that credit sequence. And that's when I was like, let's let some people have fun being in movies (laughs) again and or have horrible times. Yeah. One or the other. So if it also showed all of them in their dressing rooms crying, you also would have enjoyed that. Fine. Yeah. Totally fine. That would be much more the best of everything vibes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is all about just having a big cry. And I think really quick, we should just talk about what Fran started with at the beginning, because Fran, I do consider a humor expert. So Fran, why do you think this movie is so funny? Because in my mind, just to set it up a little or tee you up a little, this could have gone so bad in terms of all of the jokes that they tried to pull off. Like it had all the elements there for disaster and just bad Saturday Night Live skit. And in my mind did not really hit that much and instead hit the sweet spot where it made me laugh a lot. So for you, who knows way more about humor than I am, who's way funnier than I am, what makes this funny? I think what makes it funny just on an absolute baseline level is that there are jokes in the movie and that there are jokes on multiple 
planes. So there are written jokes, there are physical jokes, there are overarching scenes that are functioning as joke setup. And in the way that I say that, like, you know, Wet Hot American Summer is like a beautiful math problem. This is like pre-algebra. Yeah, it's, it's a good. very beautiful pre-algebra <laughs> problem where it's attempting a sort of similar thing of layering and interlacing different formats of jokes. When I say things aren't funny now, it's in part because no one is just writing jokes anymore. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of humor these days is based on like a humor of denial, which is to see something funny and then reject it. And the joke is that you are rejecting it versus accepting it. Like Ooh. they're all buying into the conceit of the humor, which is what works. No one's pointing out the absurdity of it. And so it's mm -hmm. that self-awareness that I think kills a lot of humor nowadays. And the other thing being is just that I think a lot of the actors tasked to be funny are just not funny and so mm -hmm. these are two perfectly competent comedic actors i mean i think zellweger is like a very accomplished comedic actress i think you and mcgregor is sometimes funny mm -hmm. <laughs> and is playing as close to kind of a straight man in this as it has mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then hyde pierce and paulson are also accomplished comedic actors I mean, I laughed at the movie. Okay. That's really it. I don't, I think the kind of humor we see so much of now is that either a scoff of recognition or mm. I think what is often derisively referred to as like clapter, which is what you see on, say, a John Oliver show. Wait, what is it? That's where you're like, haha, I agree, clapter. Oh, wow. And you're clapping because it's funny, but you're not laughing. And you can kind of feel good about how smart you are while you're doing it. Yeah, exactly. Like it affirms something. I mean, I think this movie teeters on that a little bit in mm. just sort of the periodness of it. That's very true. Almost. But it manages to escape that just by having strong joke writing as well. Yeah. And sharp editing. That's like the other thing. Is the editing is so good. Like Scorsese level cuts. I that. love Apatow and Paul Feig a lot. I think they've done a lot of cool things for the genre of comedy. Oh yeah. Not for the editing. <laughs> They're indulgent comedy directors. They're content to let a scene go on for eight minutes because Let's see what happens. they love the people on screen. They want to let them be funny. But the nicest thing you can do for a comedic actor is give them the least amount of time as possible oh, fascinating so that you can let them tell the joke and then not indulge it too heavily so yeah. i appreciate all the ways in which this movie is indulgent it's got really really sharp editing and does not overstay its welcome and neither should we <laughs> that's right yeah so i mean i think that that means it's this is a wrap on down with love i think we uh did we solve this one too did and we we're on a streak it? we we've solved eight movies so far is this number nine <laughs> no and I'm fairly confident that we are the only podcast on the planet to do a one-two punch of Power of the Dog followed by Down With Love. Power of the Dog could also just be called Down With Love. <laughs> so many good movies could, no? <laughs> yeah. Oh, the one thing we didn't get, Fran, did you want to say anything about Tenet for this? Or are you good? Nope. <laughs> nope. For once in my life, I have nothing to say about Tenet. Okay. So this was not a Tenet? This movie is not Tenet, no. All right. It's confirmed and official. No, it's been a minute since I've seen some Tenet. <laughs> I, I like the rhyme there. So anyway. Fran, um, let's get some recommendations from you. So every episode we end with a wrap-up segment where we're going to ask our guest, in this case you, for the last thing you watched recently and then a quick staff recommendation, something that you think our listeners slash viewers might like to consume. The last thing I watched in all earnest was I rewatched Lilo and Stitch, mm -hmm. a movie that has kind of just become a personal inside joke for myself, but that I am also obsessed with. Shape of Water, yeah. Yeah, shape. I've been joking about Lilo and Stitch for a long time. Recently, my roommate <laughs> came up to me and was like, you're obsessed with these Lilo Stitch guys, huh? And I was like, yeah, I don't know what's going on. So we, we 
we revisited that for reasons that had nothing to do with me, but I did recently rewatch that. Uh, my staff recommendation is not that movie, though I love that movie, is that I just finished season two of How To with John Wilson oh, at long Rachel. last. I, I got sort of stuck halfway through for some stupid reason, but I love that show. I think it's as close to like visual poetry as we could ever get on TV. It's just a really special program. It is really unique and really wonderful. I agree. Those are my recs. I love it. I love it. I haven't seen it. I feel like the last person on the planet who hasn't started watching it. And John Wilson was at Screen Slate Karaoke last night. Supposedly, not that I would know since there was a line down the block when I tried to go sing a song. <laughs> Me either. I was watching Lilo and Stitch. <laughs> too cool for school. And I was watching Pillow Talk. <laughs> Fran, thank you for joining us. Fran, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. This is so fun. It's so good to talk. I love to talk. <laughs> Where can our listeners find you and writing online? Oh, well, I'm writing for Brightwell Darkroom. Oh, cool. Of course. Mm. That sounds nice. But I'm also doing some writing for my Substack, Fran Magazine. Fran Magazine. As well as, you know, Twitter and Letterboxd, all under my name, Fran Hoffner. I'm a paying subscriber to Fran Magazine. As am I. Wow. Thank you guys so much. I'm learning a lot, to be honest. That's great. <laughs> like, legit. I can't recommend enough just listening to Fran, like, talk about things. I know. Uh, you always learn something. You always laugh. Some of it, I feel like, especially when you were writing about the video game that you've been playing. Fascinating. I was like, we did talk about this a little bit the last time I saw you. And it's amazing to see how that then translates into this prose. That's a great point. Yeah. Crystalline. Wow. Talking with Fran and, and you'll hear these seeds of things and then you'll read them online. Yeah, it's bomb. <laughs> I do recommend. Thank you. Okay, a few quick reminders to read this month's issue, which includes new essays ranging from The Matrix to The Remains of the Day. Visit <laughs> us at brightwelldarkroom.com or sign up for our weekly newsletter. You can also find us on Twitter at BWDR. And if you haven't already, please do be sure to subscribe to the podcast, share the show with a friend, or please, please, please consider leaving us a positive rating or review. There is no probably better way to help us reach more movie lovers like you than to spend maybe 30 seconds of your life and just say, I really like this show. And that helps us get more subscribers, viewers, everything that we want. And you can pay us too. You can visit <laughs> us at patreon.com slash brightwalldarkroom and throw us some coin. That would help. Our theme music is composed by Chad Perman. This podcast is produced and edited by Eli Sands. I'm playing a new video game. I'll tell you about when I see you, Veronica. I can't wait to hear it. It's really Catholic. <sighs> That's my shit. <laughs> you might go nuts for this game. It's so punishing. Veronica, do you play video games? No, but I'm Catholic. Yeah. <laughs>